Okay, what purpose uh, does London City Presbyterian Church have in a city like London? I'll repeat that again. What purpose does LCPC have in a place like this? In fact, I tell you what, why don't we widen that out a wee bit further? Okay, why have allegiance to any congregation in a city like London? Why bother with it? Aren't we just um, individual Christians? Aren't we just independent Christians who just happen to gather in specific buildings and come here to worship God? Is that not what we're doing? I mean, our church is important. Our congregations of God's church in a city like London, are they important? Are congregations important? And if they are, why? Why are congregations important? Um, Well, this morning in Acts chapter 14, what we come to, what we're going to see um, are three pictures we have of God's church. Three pictures of God's church. And hopefully what's going to happen is that we are going to look at these pictures that God shows us. And hopefully these things are going to colour our understanding of our own congregation and our own church here in London. That's the plan. That's, That's the hope this morning. And I'll not kid you, there's quite a lot of material that we've got to go through at a rate of knots this morning. So please, if you haven't got it in front of you, please have Acts 14, not Acts 8, but Acts 14 open in front of you from verse 19. I tell you what, we'll just jump straight into the first heading. Let's consider the fellowship that LCPC should provide in the city of London. The fellowship the LCPC should provide. Let's think about that. Now, if you were here last week, um, you'll remember that we talked an awful lot about the, the sort of parallels and the contrast between Lystra, this place that we're dealing with, and uh, the city of London. Do you remember we were talking about that? you remember? Um, remember what happened in Lystra? So you got the Apostle Paul and he had healed a crippled man and then, do you remember how the, the ungodly city sort of responded to that? They sort of, they just started to worship, not Jesus for this miracle, but they started to worship Paul and Barnabas. And do you remember Paul and Barnabas are like tearing off their cloaks and disgust at this, and they sort of run into the crowd in Lystra and, and, and they start preaching to him, no, don't, don't be worshipping us, yeah? You remember that? Well, it's simply as though we have just pressed pause for seven days on that scene. Because if you and me, if we're going to understand the verses we read today, we've really got to just picture ourselves still in amongst that crowd in Lystra. So can you do that with me? You know, picture yourself in the crowd in Lystra. We are with Paul and Barnabas and they've just preached and the, the people have put their knives down. Because remember, they were going to slaughter oxen and cattle to Paul and Barnabas. Now they haven't done that then imagine what happens next. Paul was preaching, but he stops because there's a bit of a commotion at the back of the crowd, isn't there? And then the crowd sort of splits a wee bit. And Paul looks and he recognizes a face. And then he sees another face. And then another one. And he realizes who it is. It's the guys from the other towns 
who were planning and trying to kill him. And they have followed him all the way here. They've arrived and they are in the midst of this crowd. Now, think about the lengths that those guys have gone to in order to stand against the gospel. Now think about it. Look what we are told here. If your Bibles are open, look at verse 19. and look, It's quite incredible because it says these guys have come from where? To Lystra they have come from, do you see it? Iconium. And they have come from Antioch. Now, now, those might just be names, but let's think about it. Those guys, these Jews, have traveled over, get this, ready? Over 100 miles in order to stand against Paul and the gospel. Now, think about that. I mean, there weren't any sort of Ryanair flights or EasyJet flights, were there, from Pisidian Antioch to, to Lystra, were they? This is 100 miles in the Middle East. In the first century, I mean, this was mountainous, this was treacherous, but so filled with hatred worthy, so antagonistic worthy to Paul. It didn't matter about that. They had to go. They had to follow Paul, stand against Christ. And then think about the, the, the genuine pain that those Jews caused when they arrived. Now, definitely here there is a a physical side to the pain. And you got that when we're reading through it, no question. Now, I thought long and hard about this this week. You know, I, I, th- I thought, how do we describe what happens to Paul? Can I describe what happens to Paul? Can I illustrate what happens to Paul? Do you know what? I can't. Because it is just too horrific. Isn't it? Look what we are told here again. It's verse 19. The people stone Paul. Uh, my sound, okay, but it ain't. I mean, this is throwing boulders at this man, and they, do you see it? I mean, they hurt this man. They beat this man so badly. Do you see what happens? The whole city of Lystra conclude that they have killed this man, that he is dead. And then do you see what they do? Paul's body lying there unconscious, and they just drag it through the city, and they chuck it out. They chuck it out of the city. Now that's bad. There is a physical side to this pain, isn't there? Do you know what, do you know what would be worse for Paul? It would be the spiritual side of this. Wouldn't it? Now let's, let's just try and get our heads around what I mean by that. The spiritual pain that these people cause. See, like, if you're anything like me, I read this first of all, and I thought the Jews arrive from Iconium and Antioch, and the Jews stone Paul and the people drag him out of the city. That is not what happens. The Jews arrive. Do you see who stones Paul? The Jews stir up the crowd. That crowd that Paul was speaking to, the people in Lystra, the ones who have seen the miracle, those are the people who stone Paul. Now, think about that. Think about the fact that surely before the Jews arrived, there would have been a moment, a glorious moment of hope for the Apostle Paul. Wouldn't there? A moment of hope? Think about it. Before the Jews arrived, he's gone into the crowd and he's preaching and he's pleading. He's telling them the gospel and he's pleading with, please don't be worshipping me, worshipping Christ. And you see what happens? Just there, they do put their knives down. You know, they, they, they put aside their solitary, don't they? They seem to be listening to him. And can you imagine it for Paul? He's thinking, they're listening. 
The Holy Spirit's maybe working here. These people might be saved. And then what happens? The Jews arrive. Satan steps in. And they turn away. Do you see how heartbreaking that would be as Paul is there bestowed by the people he thought maybe would be saved? Genuine spiritual pain. But then notice also the wonderful imagery of healing that we've got here. Now, I've said before, especially when we get to uh, unusual portions of Scripture, I, I tend to preface these by always saying that all scripture is God-breathed, which effectively means that that we believe that that the Bible, every verse in the Bible, every chapter in the Bible, this is from God. So it has value, incredible value. It's God's word. Now, with that said, isn't it true that, that some verses, some images in scripture are seem to be sort of more evocative than others. Isn't that the case? Now, there is a a verse here that just seems to be just the most beautiful, lovely, vivid image. Because think with the scene, think where we are. We've got Paul outside the city and he's been, he's unconscious and he's in a bleeding mess. And then we read verse 20. Because it says, but After the disciples had gathered around him, Paul got up and went back into the city. Don't you love it? I mean, don't don't you love the order and the chronology of it? Do you see it? It's not until the people of God gather around this wounded man that he is strong enough to, to get up and to go back into the city. Do you see it? Now, can you imagine what they're doing, the people of God? Like... They've, they, they've gone to Paul. Now, 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 surely we're not reading too much in it to say that they love Paul, don't they? Like, he would have been the guy who has led a lot of them to faith in Jesus Christ. So you can imagine what they're doing. They've gone to him, and they're gathered around him, and they're praying for Paul in that state. And they are surely sort of tending his wounds, aren't they? And you've got, you know, Barnabas, you know, one of his friends in the world surely perhaps you know supporting Paul's head that they're loving him and they're caring for him they're looking after him and folks that there is the picture of what LCPC should be like we in this place should be a a place of solace and care for wounded Christians. That's what our congregation should be like. This, this shouldn't be just a, a, a place where people arrive and think they have to battle silently through the, the wounding they have by the world. This is a place where we should gather together and we should together bring our concerns and our wounding and our to God in prayer because let's face this see the battles that Paul faced in Lystra are the same battles that we face like in London like these Jews think about the Jews here in London we have got people who are organized and people who are dedicated in trying to make sure trying to erode Christianity from the public square don't we 
the same dedication against Christianity. We see that. Now, we don't face the same sort of physical fights. But we definitely face the same spiritual wounding as Paul faced, don't we? Isn't that true for you as a Christian? Isn't it true that as a, as a congregation of God's church, we've seen the same sort of thing that Paul sees with that crowd? That we've seen people who show an initial interest in Christ. The crowd, think about the crowd. We've seen that. People might come into the church here. And do you know what? They seem to be listening. And the Holy Spirit maybe seems to be working in their hearts. And then what happens? Bang! Satan steps in. And they're nowhere. Friends, against that that, that backdrop, we see that, that, that we have to, we have to care for each other. Now, I want to ask, do you think we do that as a congregation? See, I'm not sure that we do. But we can change that. Now, we can use the prayer meetings to come and to speak to other Christians about how we have been wounded by the world. And then we can bring that to Jesus, who provides healing. Now, we could use the house groups to do this, you know. We can go at house groups and we can share with other believers about how we have been hurt by the world. And then we can go to where? We can go to God's word together where we will be healed. It can change as a congregation. And I want you to see why it is important that it does change. We need the healing that the gospel provides. We need the support of other believers. Why? So that like Paul, we will be strong enough to get up on a Monday and go back into the city with the good news of Jesus Christ. So we're seeing here the fellowship, the fellowship, the love, the support that London City Presbyterian Church should provide. Okay. Right. One thing that has um, struck me about the church scene since I moved to London, is the amount of sort of church hopping or flitting between churches uh, that, that goes on in the city. And, I, you know, you can see why it does happen. There are so many churches in London, so many different preachers. And, you know, we, we can end up sort of jumping from St. Helens Bishop's Gate to All Souls. And then the next week we could be LCPC. The next week we could go to Metab or we could go to Christ Church Mayfair or whatever. Now, what I want us to think about just now is whether that's okay. In fact, scrap that. What I want us to think about just now is whether that is biblical or not. So we've seen the fellowship. Let's consider uh, the discipleship that LCPC should provide. So the discipleship that LCPC should, should provide. Okay, where were we? Well, we've seen Paul and he has been uh, beaten and he's been left for dead. And then we've seen the disciples clean him up and he's returned to the city. Now, the next thing that you see in scripture here is that Paul and Barnabas, the very next day, which is quite something, after this beating. The next day, they go to a place called Derby. Now, to be honest, we're hardly told anything in Scripture about what happens in Derby, other than the fact, the glorious fact, that many people were saved. So I don't want us to think about Derby. I want us to think about what happens after 
therapy. And I want you to do this with me. Right? At this point, you're going to think that I'm crazy, okay, if you don't already think this. But this is useful. Do this with me. Let's think of Paul's first missionary journey, geographically speaking, if you like, as the face of a clock, okay? It might sound strange, but it's helpful. Follow me here. So he started off, let's see, geographically speaking, at two o'clock. So he started off in Syrian Antioch. That's where this journey started out. Now, he has worked his way around the face of the clock. Now, he's gone to Cyprus and then, what is it, Antalya, Perga, Pamphylia, and the city in Antioch, all, all these towns in Iconium, and he's worked his way around. He starts at two o'clock, you with me? Worked his way right round to Derby, 12 o'clock. Okay? Now, this is the last place. Derby is the la- furthest point in his missionary journey. So do you see what he has to do just to get home? He has to go from two, just from 12 o'clock to 2 o'clock. That's it. So, you know, relatively speaking, he's not got that much of the journey left to do. Ah, have a look. Verse 21, look what he does. He doesn't go from 12 o'clock to 2 o'clock. He goes back round all that face of the clock. He goes back to all the other, he retraces his steps. He revisits all the other places that he has been to, or most of them, certainly. Now, now that sounds a bit strange, maybe, to us. But wait till we think about what that means for Paul and Barnabas. Do you see what it means? It means that those guys are choosing to revisit the towns that have persecuted them and opposed them, doesn't it? They are choosing to go back to Lystra, where, they, where the people left Paul for dead. Isn't that incredible? They're going back to Iconium, where the guys they have plotted to execute Paul, they are going back to Pisidian Antioch, where Paul is shaking the dust off his feet at the rejection and rebellion against the gospel. They are choosing to go back to these places. Now, surely we've got to ask why they are willing to risk their life and limb to go back to those places. Do you know what? I think the answer to that question it should shake our understanding of God's church. See, let me ask you a question. See, when you think about these guys, Paul and Barnabas and Peter and all those sort of early church guys, and you think about all the sort of persecution that they faced, why do we think that they did that? Like if, if you're anything like me, you think, well, they went through all that persecution because they were trying to win people for Christ. Is that what you think? It is, isn't it? That's what I think. You know, they go through, they're, they're, they're battered and they're bruised and they're imprisoned and they're flogged because they're trying to win souls for Jesus Christ. But you know what? That ain't what's happening here in Acts chapter 14, is it? Think about it. Why is Paul going back to these places? He's already evangelized them. He's already told them the good news of the gospel. Why is he going back? Why is he risking his life? Let me tell you. He's risking his life to build up 
existing believers. Isn't that incredible? He is willing to risk his life in order to see existing Christians built up in the faith. Now, doesn't that just blow our understanding of the church apart? Like, you think about what the church is, the evangelical reformed churches in the 21st century. We spend so much of our time talking about evangelism, don't we? We're just banging that drum, maybe quite rightly as well. But what we're seeing here in Acts 14 is the additional necessary focus on discipleship. The need for God's church to, to preach, to build up believers as well. The need for training, the need for equipping, the need for Christians to be maturing and growing in their faith. Do you see it? That's why Paul's risking his life here. But what is awesome about um, this section of scripture is that not only does God show us here the necessity of discipleship, but do you know what? God also shows us here how discipleship should be done. And when you just notice a couple of things with me here in the text, see, think about this. To ensure that discipleship was done, what, what did Paul and Barnabas do? You know, discipleship is incredibly important. They're risking their life. What do they do to make sure it's done in verse 23? Just have a look at it. Look at verse 23. Look out. They appoint elders. That teaches us something, doesn't it? That teaches us that in God's church, there should be men who are appointed to lead. There, there should be in all churches, in God's churches, People, men, men, who are appointed to oversee this discipleship. So we learn that. But you know what? Look, we learn something else. Notice where these elders were appointed. Same verse. They were appointed in each congregation. Now, think about appointed in each congregation. Think about what that means. Like you might think that, that Paul and Barnabas established a group of elders in Asia Minor. And that these guys sort of travelled between Lystra and Iconium and these places, you know, preaching, building up and equipping. It wasn't like that. Do you see, it wasn't like that. It was that there was to be elders who were responsible for a particular group of people. Or I tell you what, flick that on its head. There was to be a particular group of people who were to come under an oversight of particular elders. Do you see what that means for our church jumping? Do you see what it means for our sort of tentative connections to congregation in London? Surely it means it shouldn't happen. It's not God's model for the New Testament church. Because of that, I'm just going to say one or two sort of practical things here. Look, first thing I have to say is that the elders in this congregation... <laughs> We are not perfect, and we are certainly not claiming to be. The Scottish term numpties sort of springs to mind about us. But our competence should not affect your obedience to what you see in the New Testament here. Indeed, the elders met. We've discussed this stuff. we prayed about this stuff. One thing we're doing is dividing the congregation into areas. If, we are, if you're a member of this church, you will be assigned an, an elder. And that elder will meet with you. And that elder will, will pray for you, will care for you, will seek to disciple you. 
But the second thing I want to say, see what we're talking about here. Does it speak to you? Does it apply to you just now? Are you jumping between congregations all the time? Is your allegiance to a congregation of God's church, is it very tentative? Do you see why? Do you see why it is important to be properly committed to a church of Jesus Christ? Do you see that? It is God's plan for his people. God desires, think about it, God desires for his children to be discipled under eldership in a congregation. And you know what? We might say, oh, that's just, that's, just, you know, that's a, an irrelevance. That's just a side issue. It's so important that this guy that we're following, this guy that we're studying, Paul, he was willing to die to make sure that it happened. So we see the discipleship that LCPC should provide. And then lastly, last thing, we see here the partnership that LCPC should provide. So the fellowship, the discipleship, the last thing is the partnership. Okay. So I'm sure you're with me. You, you've got it that we are at the furthest point. We got to the furthest point in this missionary journey in Derby. Paul's making his way back round through all these. He gets to the sort of uh, the south of Turkey. And he jumps aboard a place called Italia, and he jumps aboard a ship, and then he sails home to the sort of hometown, if you like, Syrian Antioch. Now, what I want you to think about just now is what happened when Paul and Barnabas got home. They've got home after. Can you imagine what it'd be like? Can you imagine how exhausted Paul and Barnabas would have been after this missionary journey. I mean, they're going to be tired, even just after that journey itself. But they're going to be still bearing the wounds and the scars of these beatings they've had. So what would you think happens? You know, they, they go to bed, probably. You'd think that. And they maybe sort of slip back into normal life when they get back to Syria and Antioch. It's not what happens. Have a look at verse 27 to see what happens. What happens is they get back and they gather the church together. Now, why do they do that? Why do, why do they gather the church together? Okay, last Christmas, we had a big Christmas uh, up at our house, you know, the manse up in Woodford Green. A serious Christmas, you know, with the whole family there. You know, we've been wanting to do it for years. You live and learn, you know. But uh, we had, you can imagine what it was like. You had us and our kids, and then... You had my brother and his family and their kids. Uh, and then we had the grandparents, you know, everyone together. And I'm sure you know what mums can be like at Christmas time. That everything has got to be perfect for the Christmas lunch. You've got to have everything. Like Tesco's is only closed for like a matter of hours, but never mind, you've got to get a massive Christmas shop in. Make sure that every single possible thing is there for Christmas lunch. And then disaster struck. Because my mum realised that she hadn't bought any juice. I know, like first world problem, you know, that there's any slur for, you know, your Christmas dinner. This is a disaster, disaster area. So guess what happens? Uh, I'm sort of called in the kitchen and my mum and my dad and they're saying, right, away to Tesco's and buy as much juice as you can do. And away I go. Now, 
You see that that, that is what is happening with Paul and Barnabas. I know what you're going to see. You're going to say, that's a trivial illustration, man. It is. But you see the point? Paul and Barnabas in this mission journey have not just sort of by themselves, half-cocked, gone off on a journey. Do Do you see what's happened? They were commissioned, tasked by their family of faith. They were given this task by their home congregation to go out and do this. It was a task from their family of faith. And so because of that, can you imagine what it would have been like to come back? To come back to the brothers and sisters in Antioch. Can you imagine what it would have been like after all this? Paul comes in and he's like, what have you been doing? Tell me who have you been speaking to about Jesus and Antioch? Introduce me to the new Christians. And then Paul's saying to them, friends, let me tell you about my adventures. Let me tell you about Bar Jesus and how God blinded him. Let me tell you about the kicking that I took when I was in Lystra. But you see it, they're together and they are praying together. And they are rejoicing as a family in what God has done. That's the emphasis of the text, what God has done through them in this missionary journey. Isn't it lovely? Isn't that a beautiful picture? And you know where I'm going. That is what LCPC should be like. And I say to you this morning, you do not have to be an isolated Christian in London. You don't have to be an independent Christian in London. It can be like it was in Lystra and Iconium. It can be where elders and churches are discipling and being equipped together to, to, to praise Jesus. It can be like that. And it can be like it was for Paul and Barnabas. Imagine it. Going out into, it can be like that, going out into the world and knowing that back home there's a group of, of, of Christians who are praying for you who are supporting you, who are who love you. It can be like that. In fact, I'm going to be stronger than that. It needs to be like that. Because that is God's will for his church. And we scratch our heads at this, don't we? We think, how can God want this picture of submission and oversight with flawed men, flawed... How can God want that? Because in his wisdom, in the divine sight... This is the best way for the people of God to bring the gospel to the lost world in God's view. So I've got a simple appeal for you this morning as we end. Um, If you're a regular or irregular or if you're visiting this congregation, if you're a Christian, align yourself to a congregation of God's church. Because together, we need to go out and show the world that by grace through faith in Christ, salvation and a family of faith is available to people. And I think, you know, as, as, as we end this, I think what we see is that, you know, this missionary journey that we're talking about, it's, it's finished now, it's done, that first missionary journey is done. It wasn't all about winning converts for Jesus, was it? It was about Christ building congregations 
of God's church to glorify his own name. Let's pray.